Well, thank you so much, Alicia and worship team. Uh, we're really uh, blessed to have the kind of musical talent we have here, and I think many of you recognize that. But if you see these people later on, just thank them again for all the time and work that they uh, put in. A little commercial for you before we begin our final uh, message in this uh, six-part series called Abolished You Are Free. I want to tell you what we're doing next week, starting a four-part series next week, and I want you to know what we're doing and why we're doing it. Uh, we talk a lot in the church about how to love God. Like the greatest commandment, when Jesus was asked the question, what is the greatest commandment? Uh, he, he said, uh, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he said, and the second is like unto it, but did you know that the guy who asked the question didn't ask him what's the first and second commandment? He just said, what's the greatest commandment? But Jesus volunteered the second one. He said, not only love God, but also love your neighbor as yourself. That's the second commandment. In fact, it was so important to Jesus that he put it in the answer to the question of just what is the greatest commandment. He just put them together like they're going to be inseparable. It's almost as if they're two in one, that loving others is akin to loving God. And so for four weeks, what I want to do with you is talk about the second greatest commandment, the idea of loving others. In the church, we often talk about how we love God, but the reality is the people will see God mostly through how you and I relate to them, right? So if we say that there is a God who is a forgiving God, but we're not forgiving toward them, then there's no such thing as a forgiving God, right? If we say that there's a God of grace, but I'm not gracious to them, there's no such thing as a gracious God, right? Like people will see God through the relationship they have with me and through the relationship they have with you. And so what I would like to do for four weeks is go through a series that we're simply calling Relationship Goals, all right? relationship goals. This is not a series for you to figure out how to get a date. Although, although, you might get a date if you do what we're saying. But this isn't about how to get a date. It is about how do I relate to people. This isn't a series that's aimed to change your personality. All right? This is not a let's make everybody a super friendly, outgoing extrovert. That's not the end game. Uh, I am not that way, all right? I am not an extrovert by default behavior. That's just not who I am. And I don't think that's going to change after a month of going through this. That's not the aim. The aim is, again, in how you're wired and how God has made you. How can you use that personality and think intentionally about how do I love people well? Whether it's my family, my spouse, my fiance, my boyfriend, girlfriend, whoever it is, my coworkers, people that I go to school with, how can I love well, like Jesus seems to indicate that it's pretty important to do, because how people relate to you is how they're going to relate, at least in large measure, to God. So relationship goals, four-part series, beginning next week. Commercial, over. Okay, be glad to have you back next week for that. All right, this is the part six, the finale of our six-part series called Abolished You Are Free, and we've been tracking through a little book in the Bible, a letter actually called Romans. Now, before we jump in this morning with both feet, I want to tell you about something that happened in the 30s, not the 1930s or the 1830s or the 1730s, but actually just straight up the 30s with no anything before that. Like Jesus, historians believe and Christians believe, was crucified somewhere around 32, 33 AD in the 30s. But after Jesus was crucified and came back to life as Christians believe, then the early church began to form. Like people began to see this event and start to ask questions and begin to revolve their life around this event of the resurrection. 
One of the things that happened early, early, early on in the 30s, we think it was very soon after, maybe, uh, maybe within the year of Jesus' resurrection, is that there was a, a, a man whom you will know if you have church background. If you don't have church background, I'm going to tell you the story. But there was a man who became the first martyr of the church that we have in recorded history. And this man, uh, whose name was Stephen, by the way, began to teach and preach things about Jesus that were not welcome in the Jewish world of the day. And because it was so new and so controversial, and Stephen was basically telling the Jews, you're wrong, you've crucified Jesus, you're guilty, your whole system is, going to, is corrupt, like, that isn't a smart thing to do if you want to live a long life around 33, 34 AD. Just not a good plan. Stephen did it. And he was called into account for what he did. And he was called into account to a ruling body at the time of a group called the Sanhedrin. Now, here's what we know historically is happening. In Jerusalem, the Romans are in charge. The Romans are in charge of the world at the time. They're the strongest military power. And Rome is a pretty powerful army at this time. In fact, they're so powerful that there's almost no war, believe it or not. When you're that strong, no one wants to fight you because they're going to lose. So we're in the period of what we call the Pax Romana, or the Peace of Rome, which was unprecedented peace because Rome was so strong. Well, Rome decided, here's a bunch of Jews hanging out in Jerusalem, and the best way to get them uh, organized and to keep them under wraps is to give them a little bit of autonomy to give them a little bit of freedom to be themselves. And, frankly, Rome didn't care what they believed as long as they would pay them their taxes. That's just the reality. Give us your money so we can keep building our roads and doing what we want to do and go ahead and organize, kind of self-organize, but you're not going to be able to get out from under our rule. And so Rome decided we're going to allow you as Jews to have a ruling body in Jerusalem that can hear your uh, your court cases essentially be a judicial body in kind of a a social and a spiritual authority. That thing was called the Sanhedrin. In our world today, it would be akin to the U.S. Supreme Court, the highest judicial body that we have, rolling down uh, authority to us. We can't go any higher than that. What they say goes here in the U.S. at least, right? So the Sanhedrin was made up of 71 people, believe it or not. It's a lot of people to get to agree on one thing. Agreed? There's 71 people. And in the Sanhedrin, there are groups of people. There are people called the Pharisees, who were kind of the the religious leaders of the day and very popular among the the people, kind of. They they were a part of the Sanhedrin, but also there was also a group called the Sadducees, uh, which one... um, uh, speaker had said before that the way to remember that they're Sadducees is because they didn't believe in the resurrection. Therefore, that made them sad, you see. You're welcome. Okay, that may be all you get out of church this morning, and there you go. The Sadducees were people who were uh, more friendly with Rome, and Rome could control the Sadducees. Let's just talk different parties like we have in our system, our world today. So you had the Pharisees and you had the Sadducees, and they made up the Sanhedrin. There's a few other people in that. So the Sanhedrin, this large group, 71 people who were controlled essentially by Rome but allowed to exist and all that. This man, Stephen, has brought before the Sanhedrin. And in the Sanhedrin, in this large gathering, this, this place where they would meet, 
It's a very live and dynamic um, interchange where Stephen is there before him, before them. The Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, the, San, the Sadducees bring in witnesses against Stephen. They make things up about him. And finally they ask him, Stephen, is what you are saying, what you're accused of, true? Like, are you really saying these things? And Stephen, given his moment, he's like, Yes, and let me tell you more. And he goes on for like five minutes just kind of rolling this out. And, and he was so clear, so clear, that, that they didn't even need any witnesses anymore. This riled up this Sanhedrin so much that they, you must act childish. You know what they did? They put their hands over their ears. How about that? How cool is that? Can you imagine doing that as a parent? I can't hear you, I can't hear you, no, 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 you can't have, I can't hear you. And then they yelled at the top of their lungs, and this group of people who were supposed to be the orderly group of people bringing order to a world of chaos, they got so riled up that they decided we have got to do something. Their hands over the ears yelling and screaming, and they rush Stephen. They take him out into the streets, and they take him out of the city, And they stone him. Here's how it's recorded in the book of Acts. At this, at Stephen's testimony, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, 71 of the religious leaders and social leaders and political leaders of the day rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. You've got to see what's going on. This stoning is brutal. It just... Brutal. The way that it works traditionally is you dig a hole that's supposed to be twice the size of a man's height. So if he's a six foot tall guy, a 12 foot hole. I don't know if they had time to do that here or not, but this is the way it's supposed to work. You tie someone's hands behind their back, and then the person whom they have offended is the first one, and they push them in by the hips into this now, let's say, 12-foot hole that has a bed of rocks. The hope is that they hit their head on the rocks and die in the instant. If not, we're going to kill you. And we're going to do it slowly and painfully, and we're just going to chuck rocks in there, stones in there, enough to ultimately kill you. How fun would that be, right? This is brutal and violent stuff. And this is what the political, religious, and social leaders of the day who are supposed to bring order to chaos decide that they need to do. This, by the way, is illegal. They are not allowed to, to do capital punishment as a Sanhedrin. Only Rome can kill. They don't care. This has so offended them. Time to get on with it. Get him out of here. We just heard this story. This is like Jesus part two. Get rid of Stephen. And here's what happens. Meanwhile, the witnesses, the people who are witnessing the stoning, laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul, who's just in the background of the story. All this chaos and yelling and blood and gore and all this is happening over here. And meanwhile, like in the corner is a young man named Saul, just entering the narrative, just entering the story. And Saul was there, nodding along, giving approval to his death. And here's where Saul enters the story in the scriptures. Saul continues, building off of his moment here. Saul, in the next several verses, we're going to see what he does. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him, but look what Saul does. But Saul began to destroy the church, spurred on by the passion and conviction of this moment and the, 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 the energy of this. We are going to get rid of these zealots, these people who threaten Judaism, began to destroy the church going from house to house. He dragged off, house to house dragging, not evangelism, but house to house dragging 
of men and women and put them in prison. And this is who Saul was. And here's the question. Why would someone, why would someone do this? Why would someone like Saul act in this way? And my answer is really simple. And that is, somewhere in his heart, somewhere in his soul, he was convinced that this was the right thing to do. He was convinced. Like, this is a conviction of his. If you want to talk about what convictions are, Saul, in this moment in his life, has a conviction that this is the right and noble and worthy thing to do. What else could explain this kind of behavior? And I want to talk about convictions this morning because they are so, so important in our story. Here's what I've learned about convictions, by the way. Convictions, not beliefs, drive our behavior. Agreed? Convictions, not belief, drives our behavior. And this is very important for us to distinguish. I believe that eating healthy is a good idea. You? Am I always convinced of it? I believe, also, you've heard me say this before if you've been around, that flossing is a good idea. Right? But I'm not convinced of it. I don't actually do it. See, convictions, not beliefs alone, drive our behavior. I believe a lot of things that I don't do. And so here's the other nuance of this. We regularly make decisions counter to our beliefs, but rarely make decisions counter to our convictions. Agreed? Like, I, I believe in certain things that are good for me to do, but I just don't always do them. But the things that I'm convinced are true, like that I'm convicted, no, I can't, no, I can't go against that. I can't. Like, everyone has a line somewhere, and that, that's the line of conviction. No, I can't. Like, no, I can't. We often go against our beliefs, but we rarely, rarely, rarely go against our convictions. Convictions, by the way, become our centering point when life gets hard or confusing. When life is difficult, everything else gets stripped away, and your world will come down to, what do I really now hold true in my heart and my soul? Like when things are hard to see and you can't figure out what am I going to do financially, what am I going to do medically, what am I going to do spiritually, what am I going to do with my kids, this issue has come on me and life is hard and confusing and it really moves you. It moves you to the point of coming down to your convictions. They are kind of the centering point for us. Now, with that being said, convictions take time to establish. They take time to establish. There are some here who I think have a conviction that watching NASCAR is actually a fun way to spend time. Is that right? Like watching cars go around in a circle for a while is actually enjoyable. Like I think some have that conviction. And I would bet the first time that you saw that, you weren't like, this is awesome. But as you kept doing it, and maybe you did, all right, as you kept doing it, it kept getting more and more interesting. Now, if you're really a NASCAR fan, you're slightly offended by what I'm saying this morning, which drives further the conviction into your soul because I'm persecuting you right now, okay? And your conviction is getting deeper and deeper. That's just the way it is. Some of you are convinced in your soul that country music is awesome. We're going to pray for you after the service, okay, right here. Just bring it on up and let's make that happen. But again, over time, as this goes over time, over time, over time, like the very first moment, I don't think you were like, I cannot listen to anything in the country. Now, it probably grabbed your heart and attention, but over time, convictions really are matured and deepened over time and repetition and practice and, and testing. That's the way convictions work. So convictions, because of that, convictions rarely change, rarely change, unless... We're highly intentional. It's very important. Convictions rarely change unless we're highly, highly, highly intentional. If you are a NASCAR fan now, it is unlikely that you will stop liking NASCAR. If you enjoy country music, it is unlikely that will change 
It's going to be okay. We're going to give you grace on that. It's going to be okay. Convictions rarely, rarely change unless we're highly intentional. Now, with that being said, if this is true, here's what makes this next statement so profound. Saul, after he was involved in this murder of Stephen and went off from house to house to house to house, dragging off people to go into prison, just a few years later, just a few years later, he wrote this statement. Here's what Saul, whose name was changed to the apostle Paul, wrote. He said this, There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is now, now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So let me ask you, how does somebody go from agreeing to the brutal murder and participating and becoming the, the leading persecutor of the church, being convinced in his soul this is the right thing to do, to kill people who are for Jesus? How in the world can he write, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? This is a game changer. This is a game changer. This is a game changer for me. This is a game changer for all of us. That all of a sudden, what Paul is teaching and saying, I was wrong. I was dead wrong. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. How does he get there? And why does he believe that? These convictions rarely change unless he's highly intentional. He explains why in the book of Romans, chapter 8, which is our final text this morning. I'd love to have you turn there so you can see and you can measure, you can evaluate yourself what Paul has to say. The book of Romans is the sixth book in the New Testament. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn there. If you don't, not a problem. There's a Bible around you. By the way, that's our gift to you if you don't own a Bible. But we'd love to have you drop into Romans chapter 8. Again, the sixth book in the New Testament, about two-thirds of the way in. And this same man, who just years earlier was persecuting the church and destroying it, intent on that, has all of a sudden had this change of heart and change of conviction. And writes, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is the beginning of Romans chapter 8, which is where we are going to be this morning. We're going to read a few verses and then skip toward the end, but let's go right into Romans 8 again. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then he explains verse 2 why that is. He says this, because through Christ Jesus... The law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. Okay, so he's explaining there that Jesus somehow set me free from the law that previously was in my heart. In my heart previously was a law of sin and death, and now somehow, it doesn't explain how yet, but somehow Jesus has set me free. So in other words, you should know, this is not just an emotional reaction that Paul is having. This is like a legal change in the condition of his heart and soul. Like, Jesus has set me free from this, and I used to be under the law of sin and death, but now I'm free from that because of Jesus. Now, how did that happen? Look at verses 3 and 4. Verse 3, 
For what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. Pause on that for a minute. Look at that again. What the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature. Here's what he means by that. Again, we've used the illustration of the speed limit sign along Route 30 in the past couple of weeks. We said, hey, that is speed limit 35. Most of us don't quite honor that one, just like we should. Like most of us are maybe just a tick above that at like 70 going down Route 30, right? Like we don't quite honor that one. And so he's saying the law was given... It's, it, the law was powerless to do what it was meant to do. It was weakened by the sinful nature. So here's the law, speed limit 35. Its intent is to keep you and me to do right and not do wrong. But the law doesn't have the power to change the heart that way. Like it, my heart looks at that and I'm like, 35, that means I can go 50 without getting stopped, right? Like, I mean, that's just the way it is. Or I can go maybe 44 and not get stopped. Like, how far can I push that? I don't immediately think, how can I obey the law? I'm like, how far can I go without getting caught? And that's just part of the sinfulness of the heart. And so Paul is saying the law and God's law was given, and its intent was when you follow it, it will deliver righteousness to you. Like, you are going to get right by doing right. Like, you can go home and think, I feel really good about myself. I drove 35 today. You know, well done. But tomorrow you're going to drive 36, and there it goes. You know, it's all out the window. And he's saying the law's intent was to make you right and keep you healthy and safe. But it can't do it because it was weakened by the sinful nature. Like, the heart looks at the law and is like, ooh, I want to bend, I want to break, do I really have to tell the truth? What exactly does it mean to lie anyway? I mean, it was kind of deceitful, and then we make up categories like a white line. Is that really, what about a birthday party, a surprise birthday party? They asked if we're doing something, I said, no, is that a lie? I don't know, what do I do? Okay. This is all part of the human experience. So what the law was intended to do, it couldn't do, it was weakened by the sinful nature. So God did what the law was intended to do. He's delivering righteousness to us. The law was intended to do that, but it couldn't do it because our sinful nature weakened that power. And so he sent his son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering, to make up for our sin. And so, look at the end of verse 3, he condemned sin in sinful man. And so that sinful part of us that always is awakened to where we can break the law, that part that's always awakened to that, that is forgiven because of Jesus. Not because of my obedience to the law, but it is forgiven because the sin offering was made. In order that, verse 4, the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us. Now, we can have righteousness or right standing delivered to us because of what Jesus has done, who did not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. And so that's what Paul is saying. This is why Paul is saying there's no condemnation anymore because of what Jesus has done. Like he has changed that um, expectation. You can no longer, uh, we, we never could, we can't like get right by doing right. It's just never going to work. I can't get right by doing right, but I can get right by believing and trusting in Jesus. And so he's saying this is what's happening. Now, he acknowledges in verses 5 through 11, I'm not going to read all those for you right now, but feel free to read through those. He acknowledges that there's still a battle in the mind between the spirit and the law and the struggle that that is. And that's essentially what the next several verses are, that it is hard to always do the right thing and that the law still is there, but the spirit is there. And so he just kind of talks that through a little bit. Okay? And then he picks it up again in verse 12, where I want to pick up with you again. Verse 12. Therefore, brothers... Because of there's no condemnation, because of what Jesus has done. Therefore, brothers, 
we have an obligation. That is, now we have something to do. But it's not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But, here's our obligation, if by the Spirit, then you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. That's just the way that is. If you live by the Spirit, you are a son of God. Now, verse 15. This is such a powerful verse here. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to what? Fear. You do not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to what? To fear. You didn't receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear. But you received the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. So we don't receive. This is so important. We don't receive as people who come to faith in Jesus Christ the spirit that makes us afraid anymore. Because let me ask you, what is there? What is there to be afraid of? What is there to be afraid of in this life if death is resolved? Like, what is there to be nervous about in that sense? Like, if the Spirit of God lives in me, and by the Spirit's power, He raised Jesus from the dead, and that Spirit lives in me, then what is there to be afraid of? Like he didn't give us the spirit of fear. And so here's the like, warning sign for me that when I feel the fear of whatever, like that spirit isn't put there by God, right? Like that spirit isn't from God. The spirit of fear is just not given by God because ultimately the fear, right? The fear of something bad happening, something wrong going on, whatever, that, that fear doesn't lead me to trust. It leads me to worry. It leads me to anxiety. It leads me to my resources. It leads me to my limitations. It leads me to the what if. The fear doesn't do that. But instead of a spirit of fear, look at the spirit that he gave us. He re- we received the spirit of sonship. So we received the spirit for those who believe in Jesus of like, you are now a child of God. And you can cry, and here's this Hebrew term, Abba, Father. And if you know the Bible, this is what you already know. And if you don't, this is great. I can tell you, this simply means that you can call him Dad. Like, you can say, Dad, help. Like, imagine all the good qualities of your father. And if your father didn't have any good qualities, imagine someone else's father had a good quality, okay? But, but imagine all the good qualities of your dad and none of the bad magnified times infinity. And, and we have the opportunity to, in our moments of crisis, which will come, to say, your dad, your dad is the heavenly father. So don't be afraid. Call out to him. Dad, I need help. Dad, I think I'm afraid. Like, I, I, I need you. I know this spirit of fear isn't in me, and Jesus has gotten rid of that, but like I feel that anxiety, and so I need to tell you that. But this is the spirit that people who follow Jesus have been given, the spirit of sonship, that we are now children of God. By the way, does that sound familiar like a song that we've been singing during this series? You're no longer a slave to fear. You are a child of God. Verse 16, the spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And here's the implications of that in verse 17. Now, if we are children, 
then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. Meaning again, if we're children, look, we are heirs, I have something to look forward to. I got, I got a future, right, to look forward to. I'm an heir to that, we're co-heirs with Christ, if indeed, now he's honest, we share in his sufferings in order that we can share in his glory. Just because you're a child doesn't mean the sufferings won't come. We're going to share in that, but the hope is bigger than the suffering, right? Like the, the future, the heir, the right you have to glory is bigger than the suffering. That's the reality of this thing. That we are children of a father and we can look forward to a future that is bigger than our current sufferings. That's the reality of the scriptures. That's the reality of the hope that the believer has. That we are children of this God and this father. Now, here, here's how he concludes this. He draws it down in verse 31 to kind of a wrap-up, okay? As you think about all of this, we are no longer condemned. I'm convinced of that. We are children of God and the implications of that. He asks the question in verse 31, what then shall we say in response to this? Like in all of this stuff. And he ends up asking four questions. I want you to see them so you can evaluate them because I want you to look at this and I want you to ask, is this true? Because I'm going to ask you in a couple minutes, I'm going to ask you to reflect on this in your own life and in your own heart. I'm going to ask you about your own convictions. So I want you to assess, is what I see true or not, and how can I interact with that? So look at the questions he asks. What then shall we say in response to this? First of all, if God is for us, who can be against us? Great question. He answers it. He says, he who didn't spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? That's a great question. Question number one, who's against us? Like, who can possibly be against God? Like, and who can be against us? Like, whose power will stand against that? Question number one. Look at verse 33 for question two. Who will bring any charge against them, those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies so if you are, if you are, this, this, by the way, this is a disease that impacts everybody, not just younger people, but it tends to be resident in younger people more than older, maybe because as we get older we can mask it better, not because we've necessarily gotten over it, but the problem of identity and the problem of finding my identity in what other people think of me is a problem for all of us, but particularly as we grow up through our younger years. So listen, look at this verse again. Who can bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? You know what a charge is? Here's the charge. They're stupid. They're not good enough. They're not smart enough. They're not in the cool group. They're never going to be awesome. No, he's always that way. She's always that way. Okay. You're always going to be misunderstood, but here's the point. Who cares? Like, who can bring a charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. It's not the people around you who justify. It is God who justifies. So I just want to encourage you, be careful about the voices that you listen to. Like, who is it that can bring a charge against you, that can stand? Like, can you imagine standing before God and some of your friends being like, hey, they were never in the cool group, they never wore the right clothes, they never had the right money, they never went on the right vacations, they never did the right things with whatever. God's like, are you kidding me? Are we having this conversation? I'm justifying them on the basis of their, their uh, response to me in faith. Like, that's what is going on. No other thing. And so, who can bring a charge against us? Woo! There we go. Someone's bringing a charge right now. We're going to get a charge. If you need to run for that, that's, that's great. So, who's going, to just, who, who's going to bring a charge? No one is essentially, it is God who justifies. Look at verse 34. 
Here's the third question. Who is it that condemns? Like, who can condemn you? And he, the answer is no one. Look at the verse again. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Like, no one is going to be able to condemn you outside of Jesus Christ. He's going to bring life to you, and there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? This is a powerful, powerful verse. Who's going to separate us? And look at this. Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword do that? Like, who's going to separate us? And I want you to think about this for a minute. Like, I, I would really almost want you to, to name this. So you're thinking of a trouble in your life or a hardship or a persecution? Like, shall my anxiety you know, separate me? Shall my medical problem separate me? Shall my uh, uncertain future separate me? Shall my married trouble separate me? Shall my lack of clarity about what I'm doing after graduation? Like, what is it that can possibly, possibly, possibly separate you from the love of God through Christ? And he says, nothing. Verse 36, as it is written, your sake we face death all day long, considered a sheep to be slaughtered. Verse 37, in all these things, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. How many of you, strange question I know in the middle of the message, we need a little breather for a moment. How many of you wear Nike shoes? Own a pair of Nike shoes? Yeah. Okay. Has nothing to do with the message, just curious. Just kidding. <laughs> so Nike is actually in reference to a, uh, a Roman goddess, I believe, and the, the goddess who conquers, who is above all. Who wins every time? This is the word in verse 37. We are more than Nike. We're more than conquerors. Through him who loved us. This is the origin of that word. We're going to win that. There's not even going to actually be a contest. We're we're more, whatever more than, it's amazing, more than conquerors. This is what we are. We're more, more than conquerors through him who loved us. And then Paul finishes with this in verse 38. And this is where he has moved to. From the Saul who was just that, the person who was holding the coats of all those people who were stoning him. Here's what he has now moved to. He has now moved to a different conviction. Look at his different conviction in verse 38. For I am convinced. I'm convinced. I don't just believe it. Because I'm going to go against my beliefs. I'm actually, I'm convinced that neither death nor life, angels nor demons, the present nor the future, nor any powers, height nor depth, anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I'm convinced, convinced of this. I know I used to kill people who believe this, but I just want you to know there's now no condemnation. I want you to know you're his child, and I want you to know you're more than a conqueror. I'm convinced of this. And so if I can paraphrase Paul, here's what I think he's now saying. I'm convinced. I'm convinced that I'm not condemned. That I am a child of God. That I'm a conqueror. Like I'm convinced of that. I'm convinced that these things are true. That nothing can separate us from the love of God through Jesus Christ. I'm convinced that these things are true. This is what Paul has moved to. This has buoyed him. Now, if this is true, let me go back to where we began. If, if, if it is true that convictions, not belief, drives our behavior. Convictions, not just belief, drive our behavior. Again, I 
go against my beliefs regularly, not against my convictions. If convictions and not beliefs drive our behavior, and if convictions become our centering point when life gets hard or confusing, difficult, can't see, if this is true, then here's a question that I have for you. Here's a question. What needs to be turned from belief to conviction in my own heart and in yours? What needs to be turned from belief to conviction in your heart and in mine? What needs to be taken from the pages and the, the, the letter, the words that you just saw, that needs to be taken just from belief to actually conviction? Because you know, and I do too, good grief, we're going to go against our beliefs all day long. But our convictions are the things that we're going to be willing to die for. And the convictions are the things that when life gets the most difficult, they give us clarity. Not just our beliefs, but our convictions. Convictions are developed over time with repeated and planned exposure. Convictions can change. They changed for Paul. He was killing people. And then he says there's now no condemnation. They can change. Paul himself was stoned and left for dead, but survived. His conviction about what he believed buoyed him. So what for you do you need to take from belief to conviction with repeated, repeated exposure? In other words, what if you were to look at this passage of Scripture again and to say, wait a minute, what if you could say, I'm convinced. I'm not condemned. I am a child of God. And I'm a conqueror. Can you imagine what that would do for you? In the hardest of times when everything is thrown up in the air, can you imagine what that would do? To be able to actually, not just believe that, but to have that deeply embedded in your soul. I'm a child of God. I have nothing to fear. I have nothing to fear. There's no one who can condemn me. God alone justifies. Like, I know this may not end well, but even if, listen, even if this doesn't end well, I have a future in glory to look forward to. Like, imagine living with that freedom of being able to say, this is not just a belief, but this is a conviction. I'm convinced that there's absolutely nothing that can separate me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And so I know things are hard right now, but I'm con- this is who God has made me if I'm following Him. He's put a spirit in me, a spirit of sonship. I'm a child, and when things are hard, I'm going to call out to my dad, my heavenly father, who knows me and loves me. Like that kind of conviction where I can say, you know what, I don't know how to get through it but I know I'm his child. And I know I'm a conqueror. I don't feel like a conqueror, but this is true. And what can separate me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus? I want for you, listen, I I want for you to be able to live the kind of life that Jesus came to deliver for you. In other words, like I don't want your life to be middling around in the middle of like, I believe and I believe and I believe and just believe. I don't want that. I want something more for us. I want something more that at the end of the day, that you can look back on your life and be like, I live my life with a conviction 
that there was nothing that could ever separate me. And I wasn't afraid when everybody else said I should be afraid. And I didn't give in to the peer pressure when everybody else did because I know that those things aren't right to do. And I didn't just pack up and leave and run away from this relationship when it got hard. And I didn't like stop praying about the things that are hard to pray about. I didn't do those things because I'm a child of God. I didn't stop that. I didn't give up. I didn't run away. I didn't pack it in. I'm a conqueror. This is what I'm made to do. Like, can you imagine the depth and richness of life that would come from these convictions with repeated, repeated exposure coming back to me and to you? Imagine what that would be like. That's what I want for you. I want you to know, and I want you to not just believe, but to have this impression pushed further and further down into your soul. And that might be as simple as a verse to memorize. It may be as simple as a phrase to repeat or a song to engage over time and time and time and time and time. And so here's what we're going to do to wrap this thing up this morning. We're going to sing a song, uh, not led by me, you're welcome about that, called More Than Conquerors. It's a song that may be familiar to some of you, may not be to many of you, no problemo, we'll get you up to speed in a hurry. In the next few minutes, as the worship team comes in a minute after I pray here, uh, they're going to play through the song kind of to intro that to you and and just allow you to experience what that song is about more than conquerors. comes right from the passage that we talked about here this morning. But here's what I want you to use this time for. You're going to have about a minute or two after I pray. And I would love for you to use that time in your own heart to say, okay, what is it that I'm really convinced of? What is it that I'm going to die for? What is it that I need to turn just from a belief to a conviction through repeated and intentional exposure? What verse do I need to put on my phone or on my car dashboard and see that thing every day for the next month and a half? What person do I need to forgive every morning when I wake up? Kind of thing. Like, what is it that I need to do? And it could be as simple as, I'm convinced. I'm no longer condemned. I'm a child of God. I am more than a conqueror. What is it that you need to take and turn from belief into conviction? To remember that you are, indeed, free. Because the power of sin has been abolished. So I want you to take a few minutes. I'm going to pray. Worship team will come. They're going to play. Process that. Take some action on something that can move from belief to conviction. And then we're going to stand together and sing more than conquerors as we wrap it up. Will you pray with me this morning? Our good God and Heavenly Father, thank you for your word and the chance to be in the scriptures this morning. I pray that you would take um, the power of your word and the, uh, the import of that and move that right into our lives and help us to see and reflect on where it is that we need to move from just belief and, and just giving a verbal assent to something to push with repeated exposure these beliefs further down into our soul so they become convictions and they guide us and direct us in some of the most difficult times of life. So I pray that you would give us help and clarity to do this with repeated exposure over the long term to intentionally remember things like we're about to sing, that we are more than conquerors because of what Jesus has done for us. And so give us this courage to press in, be open and honest with beliefs and convictions, and help us 
to identify. Where we can take one verse, one idea, one theme, and drive that further and further into our own heart and soul. And I pray that the result would be a life where we are given over more and more in our love for Jesus Christ. We pray this.